Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 39 and 40, from a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. And now, chapter 39, The Yankees' Fight. Home again, at Camelot. A morning or two later, I found the paper, damp from the press, by my plate at the breakfast table. I turned to the advertising columns, knowing I should find something of personal interest to me there. It was this. Depar Leroy. Know that the great lord and illustrious knight, Sir Sagramore le Desirius, having condescended to meet the king's minister, Hank Morgan, the which is surnamed the boss, for satisfaction of offense anciently given. These will engage in the lists by Camelot about the fourth hour of the morning of the sixteenth day of this next succeeding month. The battle will be an outrance, since the said offense was of a deadly sort, admitting of no composition. Depar Leroy Clarence's editorial reference to this affair was to this effect. It will be observed by a glance at our advertising columns that the community is to be favored with a treat of unusual interest in the tournament line. The names of the artists are warrant of good entertainment. The box office will be open at noon of the 13th, admission three cents, reserved seats five. Proceeds go to the hospital fund. The royal pair and all the court will be present. With these exceptions, and the press and the clergy, the free list is strictly suspended. Parties are hereby warned against buying tickets of speculators. They will not be good at the door. Everybody knows and likes the boss. Everybody knows and likes Sir Sag. Come, let us give the lads a good send-off. Remember, the proceeds go to a great and free charity and one whose broad benevolence stretches out its helping hand, warm with the blood of a loving heart, to all that suffer, regardless of race, creed, condition, or color. The only charity yet established in the earth which has no politico-religious stopcock on its compassion." but says, Here flows the stream. Let all come and drink. Turn out, all hands. Fetch along your doughnuts and your gumdrops and have a good time. Pie for sale on the grounds, and rocks to crack it with. And circus lemonade, three drops of lime juice to a barrel of water. 
This is the first tournament under the new law, which allow each combatant to use any weapon he may prefer. You may want to make a note of that. Up to the day set, there was no talk in all Britain of anything but this combat. All other topics sank into insignificance and passed out of men's thoughts and interest. It was not because a tournament was a great matter. It was not because Sir Sagramore had found the Holy Grail, but had failed. It was not because the second official personage in the kingdom was one of the duelists. No, all these features were commonplace. Yet there was abundant reason for the extraordinary interest which this coming fight was creating. It was born of the fact that all the nation knew that this was not to be a duel between mere men, so to speak, but a duel between two mighty magicians. A duel not of muscle, but of mind. Not of human skill, but of superhuman art and craft. A final struggle for supremacy between the two master enchanters of the age. It was realized that the most prodigious achievements of the most renowned knights could not be worthy of comparison with a spectacle like this. They could be but child's play, contrasted with this mysterious and awful battle of the gods. Yes, all the world knew it was going to be in reality a duel between Merlin and May, a measuring of his magic powers against mine. It was known that Merlin had been busy whole days and nights together, imbuing Sir Sagramore's arms and armor with supernatural powers of offense and defense, and that he had procured for him from the spirits of the air a fleecy veil which would render the wearer invisible to his antagonist while still visible to other men. Against Sir Sagramore, so weaponed and protected, a thousand knights could accomplish nothing. Against him no known enchantments could prevail. These facts were sure. Regarding them there was no doubt, no reason for doubt. There was but one question. Might there be still other enchantments, unknown to Merlin, which could render Sir Sagramore's veil transparent to me, and make his enchanted mail vulnerable to my weapons? This was the one thing to be decided in the lists. Until then the world must remain in suspense. So the world thought there was a vast matter at stake here, and the world was right, but it was not the one they had in their minds. No, a far vaster one was upon the cast of this die. The life of knight errantry. I was a champion, it was true, but not the champion of the frivolous black arts. I was the champion of hard, unsentimental common sense and reason. I was entering the lists to either destroy knight-errantry or be its victim. Vast as the showgrounds were, there were no vacant spaces in them outside of the lists at ten o'clock on the morning of the 16th. The mammoth grandstand was clothed in flags, streamers, and rich tapestries, and packed with several acres of small-fried tributary kings, their suites, and the British aristocracy with our own royal gang in the chief place, and each and every individual a flashing prism of gaudy silks and velvets. Well, I never saw anything to begin with it but a fight between an upper Mississippi sunset and the Aurora Borealis. The huge camp of beflagged and gay-colored tents at one end of the list, with a stiff-standing sentinel at every door, and a shining shield hanging by him for challenge, was another fine sight. You see, every knight was there who had any ambition or any caste feeling, for my feeling toward their order was not much of a secret, and so here was their chance. If I won my fight with Sir Sagramore, others would have the right to call me out as long as I might be willing to respond. Down at our end there were but two tents, one for me and another for my servants. 
At the appointed hour the king made a sign, and the heralds, in their tabards, appeared and made proclamation, naming the combatants and stating the cause of quarrel. There was a pause, then a ringing bugle-blast, which was the signal for us to come forth. All the multitude caught their breath, and an eager curiosity flashed into every face. Out from his tent rode great Sir Sagramor, an imposing tower of iron, stately and rigid, his huge spear standing upright in its socket and grasping his strong hand, his grand horse's face and breast cased in steel, his body clothed in rich trappings that almost dragged the ground. Oh, a most noble picture! A great shout went up of welcome and admiration. And then out I came, but I didn't get any shout. There was a wondering and eloquent silence for a moment. Then a great wave of laughter began to sweep along that human sea, but a warning bugle-blast cut its career short. I was in the simplest and comfortablest of gymnast costumes, flesh-colored tights from neck to heel, with blue silk puffings about my loins, and bareheaded. My horse was not above medium size, but he was alert, slender-limbed, muscled with watch-springs, and just a greyhound to go. He was a beauty, glossy as silk, and naked as he was when he was born, except for bridle and ranger saddle. The iron tower and the gorgeous bed quilt came cumbrously but gracefully pirouetting down the list, and we tripped lightly up to meet them. We halted. The tower saluted. I responded. Then we wheeled and rode side by side to the grandstand and faced our king and queen, to whom we made obeisance. The queen exclaimed, "'Alack, sir boss, with fight naked, and without lance or sword, or—' But the king checked her, and made her understand, with a polite phrase or two, that this was none of her business. The bugles rang again, and we separated and rode to the ends of the list, and took position. Now old Merlin stepped into view, and cast a dainty web of gossamer threads over Sir Sagramore, which turned him into Hamlet's ghost. The king made a sign— the bugles blew. Sir Sagramore laid his great lance in rest, and the next moment here he came thundering down the course with his veil flying out behind, and I went whistling through the air like an arrow to meet him, cocking my ear the while, as if noting the invisible knight's position and progress by hearing and not sight. A courage of encouraging shouts burst out for him, and one brave voice flung out a heartening word for me, said, "'Go it, Slim Jim!' It was an even bet that Clarence had procured that favor for me, and furnished the language, too. When that formidable lance-point was within a yard and a half of my breast, I twitched my horse aside without an effort, and the big knight swept by, scoring a blank. I got plenty of applause that time. We turned, braced up, and down we came again. Another blank for the knight. Another roar of applause for me. This same thing was repeated once more, and it fetched such a whirlwind of applause that Sir Sagramore lost his temper, and at once changed his tactics, and set himself the task of chasing me down. Why, he hadn't any show in the world at that. It was a game of tag, with all the advantage on my side. I whirled out of his path with ease whenever I chose, and once I slapped him on the back as I went to the rear. Finally I took the chase into my own hands, and after that— turn or twist or do what he would, he was never able to get behind me again. He found himself always in front at the end of his maneuver, so he gave up that business and retired to his end of the list. His temper was clear gone now, and he forgot himself 
"'and flung an insult at me which disposed of mine. "'I slipped my lasso from the horn of my saddle "'and grasped the coil in my right hand. "'This time you should have seen him come. "'It was a business trip, sure. "'By his gait there was blood in his eye. "'I was sitting my horse at ease "'and swinging the great loop of my lasso "'in wide circles about my head. "'The moment he was under way, I started for him. "'When the space between us had narrowed to forty feet, "'I sent the snaky spirals of the rope a-cleaving through the air, "'then darted aside and faced about "'and brought my trained animal to a halt "'with all his feet braced under him for a surge. "'The next moment the rope sprang taut "'and yanked Sir Sagramore out of the saddle. "'Great Scott, but there was a sensation. "'Unquestionably, the popular thing in this world is novelty. "'These people had never seen anything "'of that cowboy business before, "'and it carried them clear off their feet with delight.' From all around and everywhere, the shout went up, Encore! Encore! I wondered where they got that word, but there was no time to cipher on philological matters, because the whole night errantry hive was just humming now, and my prospect for trade couldn't have been better. The moment my lasso was released and Sir Sagramore had been assisted to his tent, I hauled in the slack, took my station, and began to swing my loop around my head again. I was sure to have use for it, "'as soon as they could elect a successor for Sir Sagramore, "'and that couldn't take long where there were so many hungry candidates. "'Indeed, they elected one straight off, Sir Hervis de Reville. "'Bzzz! Here he came, like a house afire. "'I dodged. He passed like a flash, "'with my horsehair coils setting around his neck. "'A second or so later, pssst, his saddle was empty. "'I got another encore, and another, and another, and still another.' When I had snaked five men out, things began to look serious to the ironclads, and they stopped and consulted together. As a result, they decided that it was time to waive etiquette and send their greatest and best against me. To the astonishment of that little world, I lassoed Sir Lamarack de Gallus, and after him Sir Galahad. So you see there was simply nothing to be done now but play their right bower, bring out the super-best of the superb, the mightiest of the mighty, "'the great Sir Lancelot himself. "'A proud moment for me? "'I should think so. "'Yonder was Arthur, King of Britain. "'Yonder was Guinevere, yes, "'and whole tribes of little provincial kings and kinglets. "'And in the tented camp yonder, "'renowned knights from many lands, "'and knightwise the selectest body known to chivalry, "'the knights of the table round, "'the most illustrious in Christendom, "'and biggest fact of all, the very sun of their shining system was yonder couching his lance, the focal point of forty thousand adoring eyes, and all by myself, here was I laying for him. Across my mind flitted the dear image of a certain hello girl of West Hartford, and I wished she could see me now. In that moment, down came the invincible, with the rush of a whirlwind, the courtly world rose to its feet and bent forward. The fateful coils went circling through the air, "'and before you could wink, I was towing Sir Lancelot across the field on his back "'and kissing my hand to the storm of waving kerchiefs "'and thunder-crash of applause that greeted me. "'Said I to myself, as I coiled my lariat and hung it on my saddle-horn, "'and sat there drunk with glory, "'The victory is perfect. No other will venture against me. Knight errantry is dead. "'Now imagine my astonishment, and everybody else's too.' "'to hear the peculiar bugle-call "'which announces that another competitor "'is about to enter the list. "'There was a mystery here. "'I couldn't account for this thing. 
"'Next, I noticed Merlin gliding away from me, "'and then I noticed that my lasso was gone. "'The old sleight-of-hand expert had stolen it, sure, "'and slipped it under his robe. "'The bugle blew again. "'I looked, and down came Sagramore riding again, "'with his dust brushed off and his veil nicely rearranged. "'I trotted up to meet him, "'and pretended to find him by the sound of the horse's hoofs. "'He said, "'Thou art quick of ear, but it will not save thee from this.' "'and he touched the hilt of his great sword. "'And ye are not able to see it "'because of the influence of the veil. "'Know that it is no cumber's lance, but a sword, "'and I ween ye will not be able to avoid it.' "'His visor was up, and there was death in his smile. "'I should never be able to dodge his sword. "'That was plain. "'Somebody was going to die this time. "'If he got the drop on me, I could name the corpse. "'We rode forward together and saluted the royalties.' "'This time the king was disturbed. "'He said, "'Where is thy strange weapon?' "'It is stolen, sire. "'Hast another at hand?' "'No, sire. "'I brought only one. "'Then Merlin mixed in. "'He brought but the one "'because there was but the one to bring. "'There exists none other but that one. "'It belongeth to the king of the demons of the sea. "'This man is a pretender and ignorant, "'else he had known that that weapon "'can be used in but eight bouts only.' "'and then it vanisheth the way to its home under the sea. "'Then is he weaponless,' said the king. "'So, Sir Sagramore, you will grant him leave to borrow.' "'And I will lend,' said Sir Lancelot, blimping up. "'He is a brave a knight of his hands, as any that be on live, "'and he shall have mine.' "'He put his hand on his sword to draw it. "'But Sir Sagramore said, "'Stay, it may not be. "'He shall fight with his own weapons. "'It was his privilege to choose them and bring them.' "'If he has erred, on this head be it.' "'Knight,' said the king, "'thou art overwrought with passion. "'It disorders thy mind. "'Wouldst kill an unarmed man? "'If he does it, he shall answer to me,' "'said Sir Lancelot. "'I will answer it to any he that desireth,' "'retorted Sir Sagramore hotly. "'Merlin broke in, rubbing his hands "'and smiling his low-downest smile "'of malicious gratification. "'Tis well said, right well said.' "'and tis enough of parleying. "'Let my lord the king deliver the battle signal.' "'The king had to yield. "'The bugle made proclamation, "'and we turned apart and rode to our stations. "'There we stood, a hundred yards apart, "'facing each other, rigid and motionless, "'the horsed statues. "'And so we remained, in a soundless hush, "'as much as a full minute, "'everybody gazing, nobody stirring. "'It seemed as if the king could not take heart "'to give the signal.' "'but at last he lifted his hand. "'The clear note of the bugle followed. "'Sir Sagramore's long blade "'described a flashing curve in the air, "'and it was superb to see him come. "'I sat still. "'On he came. "'I did not move. "'People got so excited that they shouted to me, "'Fly! Save thyself! "'This is murder!' "'I never budged so much as an inch "'till that thundering apparition "'had got within fifteen paces of me. Then I snatched a dragoon revolver out of my holster. There was a flash and a roar, and the revolver was back in the holster before anybody could tell what happened. Here was a riderless horse plunging by, and yonder lay Sir Sagramore, stone dead. The people that ran to him were stricken dumb to find that life was actually gone out of the man, and no reason for it visible, no hurt upon his body, nothing like a wound. There was a hole through the breast of his chain mail, 
"'but they attached no importance to a little thing like that. "'And as a bullet wound, there produces but little blood. "'None came in sight because of the clothing and swaddlings under the armor. "'The body was dragged over to let the king and the swells look down upon it. "'They were stupefied with astonishment, naturally. "'I was requested to come and explain this miracle. "'But I remained in my tracks, like a statue, and said, "'If it is a command, I will come.' "'but my lord the king knows that I am where the laws of combat "'require me to remain while any desire to come against me. "'I waited. Nobody challenged. Then I said, "'If there are any who doubt that this field is well and fairly won, "'I do not wait for them to challenge me. I challenge them.' "'It is a gallant offer,' said the king, "'and well beseems you. Whom will you name first? "'I name none. I challenge all.' Here I stand, and dare the chivalry of England to come against me, not by individuals, but in mass. What? shouted a score of knights. You have heard the challenge. Take it, or I proclaim you recreant knights and vanquished, every one. It was a bluff, you know. At such a time it is sound judgment to put on a bold face and play your hand for a hundred times what it's worth. Forty-nine times out of fifty nobody dares to call. "'and you rake in the chips. "'But just this once, well, things looked squally. "'In just no time, five hundred knights were scrambling into their saddles, "'and before you could wink, a widely scattering drove were under way "'and clattering down upon me. "'I snatched both revolvers from the holsters "'and began to measure distances and calculate chances. "'Bang! One saddle empty. "'Bang! Another one. "'Bang! Bang! And I bagged two. "'Well, it was nip and tuck with us, and I knew it. "'I spent the eleventh shot without convincing these people. "'The twelfth man would kill me, sure. "'And so I never did feel so happy "'as I did when my ninth downed its man, "'and I detected the wavering in the crowd "'which always denotes panic. "'An instant lost could now knock out my last chance, "'but I didn't lose it. "'I raised both revolvers and pointed them. "'The halted just stood their ground "'just about one good square moment.' "'then broke and fled. "'The day was mine. "'Night errantry was a doomed institution. "'The march of civilization was begun. "'How did I feel? "'Ah, you could never imagine it. "'And Br'er Merlin? "'His stock was flat again. "'Somehow, every time the magic of Falderall "'tried conclusions with the magic of science, "'the magic of Falderall got left. "'We'll return with Chapter 40. Right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. And now, Chapter 40, titled, Three Years Later. When I broke the back of knight errantry that time, I no longer felt obliged to work in secret. So, the very next day, I exposed my hidden schools, my mines, and my vast system of clandestine factories and workshops to an astonished world. That is to say, I exposed the 19th century to the inspection of the 6th. Well, it is always a good plan to follow up an advantage promptly. 
The knights were temporarily down, but if I would keep them, so I must simply paralyze them. Nothing short of that would answer. You see, I was bluffing that last time in the field. It would be natural for them to work around to that conclusion, if I gave them a chance, so I must not give them time, and I didn't. I renewed my challenge, engraved it on brass, posted it up where any priest could read it to them, and also kept it standing in the advertising columns of the paper. I not only renewed it, but added to its proportions. I said, name the day, and I would take fifty assistants and stand up against the massed chivalry of the whole earth and destroy it. I was not bluffing this time. I meant what I said. I could do what I promised. There wasn't any way to misunderstand the language of that challenge. Even the dullest of the chivalry perceived that this was a plain case of put up or shut up. They were wise and did the latter. In all the next three years they gave me no trouble worth mentioning. Consider the three years sped. Now look around on England, a happy and prosperous country, and strangely altered. Schools everywhere, and several colleges, a number of pretty good newspapers. Even authorship was taking a start. Sir Dinadan the humorist was first in the field, with a volume of gray-headed jokes which I had been familiar with during thirteen centuries. If he had left out that old rancid one about the lecturer, I wouldn't have said anything, but I couldn't stand that one. I suppressed the book and hanged the author. Slavery was dead and gone. All men were equal before the law. Taxation had been equalized. The telegraph, the telephone, the phonograph, the typewriter, the sewing machine, and all the thousand willing and handy servants of steam and electricity were working their way into favor. We had a steamboat or two on the Thames. We had steam warships, and the beginnings of a steam commercial marine. I was getting ready to send out an expedition to discover America. We were building several lines of railway, and our line from Camelot to London was already finished and in operation. I was shrewd enough to make all offices connected with the passenger service places of high and distinguished honor. My idea was to attract the chivalry and nobility, and make them useful and keep them out of mischief. The plan worked very well. The competition for the places was hot. The conductor of the 4.33 Express was a duke. There wasn't a passenger conductor on the line below the degree of Earl. They were good men, every one, but they had two defects which I couldn't cure, and so had to wink at. They wouldn't lay aside their armor, and they would knock down fare. I mean, rob the company. There was hardly a knight in all the land who wasn't in some useful employment. They were going from end to end of the country in all manner of useful missionary capacities. Their penchant for wandering, and their experience in it, made them altogether the most effective spreaders of civilization we had. They went clothed in steel, and equipped with sword and lance and battle-axe, and if they couldn't persuade a person to try a sewing machine on the installment plan, or a melodeon, or a barbed wire fence, or a prohibition journal, or any of the other thousand and one things they canvassed for, they removed him and passed on. I was very happy. Things were working steadily toward a secretly longed-for point. You see, I had two schemes in my head which were the vastest of all my projects. The one was to overthrow the Catholic Church and set up the Protestant faith on its ruins. Not as an established church, but as a go-as-you-please one. And the other project was to get a decree issued by and by, commanding that upon Arthur's death, unlimited suffrage should be introduced, and given to men and women alike at any rate to all men, wise or unwise, and to all mothers who at middle age should be found to know nearly as much as their sons at twenty-one. 
Arthur was good for thirty years yet, he being about my own age, that is to say, forty, and I believe that in that time I could easily have the active part of the population of that day ready and eager for an event which would be the first of its kind in the history of the world, a rounded and complete governmental revolution without bloodshed. The result to be a republic. Well, I may as well confess, though I do feel ashamed when I think of it. I was beginning to have a base hankering to be the first president myself. Yes, there was more or less human nature in me. I found that out. Clarence was with me, as concerned the revolution, but in a modified way. His idea was a republic, without privileged orders, but with a hereditary royal family at the head of it, instead of an elective chief magistrate. He believed that no nation that had ever known the joy of worshipping a royal family could ever be robbed of it and not fade away and die of melancholy. I urged that kings were dangerous. He said, Then have cats. He was sure that a royal family of cats would answer every purpose. They would be as useful as any other royal family. They would know as much. They would have the same virtues and the same treacheries, the same disposition to get up shindies with other royal cats. They would be laughably vain and absurd and never know it. They would be wholly inexpensive. Finally, they would have as sound a divine right as any other royal house. And Tom Seventh, or Tom Eleventh, or Tom Fourteenth, by the grace of God King, would sound as well as it would when applied to the ordinary royal tomcat with tights on. And as a rule, said he, in his neat modern English, the character of these cats would be considerably above the character of the average king. And this would be an immense moral advantage to the nation, for the reason that a nation always models its morals after its monarchs. The worship of royalty being founded in unreason, these graceful and harmless cats would easily become as sacred as any other royalties, and indeed more so, because it would presently be noticed that they hanged nobody, beheaded nobody, imprisoned nobody, inflicted no cruelties or injustices of any sort, and so must be worthy of a deeper love and reverence than the customary human king, and would certainly get it. The eyes of the whole harried world would soon be fixed upon this humane and gentle system, and royal butchers would presently begin to disappear. Their subjects would fill the vacancies with catlings from our own royal house. We should become a factory which should supply the thrones of the world. Within forty years all of Europe would be governed by cats, and we should furnish the cats. The reign of universal peace would begin then, to end no more forever. Meow, yow, yow, yow. Hang him, I supposed he was in earnest, was beginning to be persuaded by him, until he exploded that cat howl and startled me almost out of my clothes. But he never could be in earnest. He didn't know what it was. He had pictured a distinct and perfectly rational and feasible improvement upon constitutional monarchy, but he was too featherheaded to know it, or care anything about it either. I was going to give him a scolding, but Sandy came flying in at that moment, wild with terror, and so choked with sobs that for a minute she could not get her voice. I ran and took her in my arms, and lavished caresses upon her, and said beseechingly, "'Speak, darling, speak. What is it?' Her head fell limp upon my bosom, and she gasped, almost inaudibly. "'Hello, Central!' "'Quick!' I shouted to Clarence. "'Telephone the King's homeopath to come.' In two minutes I was kneeling by the child's crib, and Sandy was dispatching servants here, there, and everywhere, all over the palace. I took in the situation almost at a glance. Membranous croup. I bent down and whispered, Wake up, sweetheart. 
Hello, Central. She opened her soft eyes languidly and made out to say, Papa. That was a comfort. She was far from dead yet. I sent for preparations of sulfur. I rousted out the croup kettle myself, for I don't sit down and wait for doctors when Sandy or the child is sick. I knew how to nurse both of them and had had experience. This little chap had lived in my arms a good part of its small life, and often I could soothe away its troubles and get it to laugh through the tear-dews on its eyelashes when even its mother couldn't. Sir Lancelot, in his richest armor, came striding along the great hall now on his way to the stock board. He was president of the stock board, and occupied the siege perilous, which he had bought of Sir Galahad. For the stock board consisted of the knights of the round table, and they used the round table for business purposes now. Seats at it were worth, well, you would never believe the figure, so it is no use to state it. Sir Lancelot was a bear, and he had put up the corner in one of the new lines, and was just getting ready to squeeze the shorts today. But what of that? He was the same old Lancelot, and when he glanced in as he was passing the door and found out that his pet was sick, that was enough for him. Bulls and bears might fight it out their own way for all him. He would come right in here and stand by little Hello Central for all he was worth. And that was what he did. He shied his helmet into the corner, and in half a minute he had a new wick in the alcohol lamp and was firing up on the croup kettle. By this time Sandy had built a blanket canopy over the crib, and everything was ready. Sir Lancelot got up steam. He and I loaded up the kettle with unslaked lime and carbolic acid, with a touch of lactic acid added thereto, then filled the thing up with water and inserted the steam spout under the canopy. Everything was ship-shaped now, and we sat down on the other side of the crib to stand our watch. Sandy was so grateful and so comforted that she charged a couple of church wardens with willow bark and sumac tobacco for us, and told us to smoke as much as we pleased. It couldn't get under the canopy, and she was used to smoke, being the first lady in the land who had ever seen a cloud blown. Well, there couldn't be a more contented or comfortable sight than Sir Lancelot in his noble armor, sitting in gracious serenity at the end of a yard of snowy church warden. He was a beautiful man, a lovely man, and was just intended to make a wife and children happy. But, of course, Guinevere. However, it's no use to cry over what's done that can't be helped. Well, he stood watch and watch with me, right straight through, for three days and nights, till the child was out of danger. Then he took her up in his great arms and kissed her, with his plumes falling about her golden head, then laid her softly in Sandy's lap again, and took his stately way down the vast hall, between the ranks of admiring men-at-arms and menials, and so disappeared. And no instinct warned me that I would never see him again in this world. Lord, what a world of heartbreak it is! The doctor said we must take the child away, if we would coax her back to health and strength again, and she must have sea air. So we took a man-of-war, and a suite of two hundred and sixty persons, and went cruising about, and after a fortnight of this we stepped ashore on the French coast, and the doctors thought it would be a good idea to, to make something of a stay there. The little king of that region offered us hospitalities, and we were glad to accept. If he had had as many conveniences as he lacked, we should have been plenty comfortable enough. Even as it was, we met out very well, in his queer old castle, by the help of comforts and luxuries from the ship. At the end of a month I sent the vessel home for fresh supplies, and for news. We expected her back in three or four days. She would bring me, along with other news, the result of a certain experiment which I had been starting. 
It was a project of mine to replace the tournament with something which might furnish an escape for the extra steam of the chivalry, keep those bucks entertained and out of mischief, and at the same time preserve the best thing in them, which was their hearty spirit of emulation. I had had a choice band of them in private training for some time, and the date was now arriving for their first public effort. This experiment was baseball. In order to give the thing vogue from the start and place it out of the reach of criticism, I chose my nines by rank, not capacity. There wasn't a knight in either team who wasn't a sceptered sovereign. As for material of this sort, there was a glut of it always around Arthur. You couldn't throw a brick in any direction and not cripple the king. Of course, I couldn't get these people to leave off their armor. They wouldn't do so when they bathed. They consented to differentiate the armor so that a body could tell one team from the other. But that was the most they would do. So, one of the teams wore chain mail ulsters, and the other wore plate armor made of my new Bessemer steel. Their practice in the field was the most fantastic thing I ever saw. Being ball-proof, they never skipped out of the way, but stood still and took the result. When a Bessemer was at the bat and a ball hit him, it would bound a hundred and fifty yards sometimes. And when a man was running and threw himself on his stomach to slide to his base, it was like an ironclad coming into port. At first I appointed men of no rank to act as umpires, but I had to discontinue that. These people were no easier to please than other nines. The umpire's first decision was usually his last. They broke him in two with a bat, and his friends toted him home on a shutter. When it was noticed that no umpire ever survived a game, umpiring got to be unpopular. So I was obliged to appoint somebody whose rank and lofty position under the government would protect him. Here are the names of the nines. Bessemer's Ulsters, King Arthur, Emperor Lucius, King Lot of Lothian, King Logris, King of North Gallus, King Marhalt of Ireland, King Marcel, King Morganor, King of Little Britain, King Mark of Cornwall, King Labor, King Nentris of Garlot, King Pelham of Listengees, King Melodus of Leonis, King Bagdamagus, King of the Lake, King Ptolemy Lafientes, and the Soden of Syria. Umpire, Clarence. The first public game would certainly draw 50,000 people, and for solid fun would be worth going around the world to see. Everything would be favorable. It was balmy and beautiful spring weather now, and nature was all tailored out in her new clothes. Thanks for joining us for a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, chapters 39 and 40. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.